I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles in whatever form you may have your Bible, electronic or old-fashioned pages, uh, and turn to the book of Amos. In the Old Testament, Amos is one of what we call the minor prophets. They're not minor because they're lesser. They're minor because they're shorter, uh, and yet very important words. We're going to be in Amos chapter 4. It is no secret that we have lived in a consumerist society for quite some time. In fact, I always used to think that was kind of a modern-day term. But I I read an interview with a sociologist who said, actually, the consumerist mentality in the United States stems all the way back to the 1920s. Because it was in the 1920s that there was the, the, the continued growth of mass production. And from then until now, it's very clear, we like our stuff. We like more of our stuff. And we like new stuff. Over the years, I've had opportunity to talk to people in a variety of different situations and circumstances. I know of one instance where an individual got very, very upset because when their new car was ordered, a feature on the trim of the vehicle that they wanted wasn't there. And they were very angry that this little feature on the trim wasn't there. I literally have sat in my office years ago, was talking to an individual who was in deep debt. And yet they pulled in that day and, and, and it really tested me because I am a Mustang guy. And they pulled into a, in with a brand new late model Ford Mustang with all of the trimmings. And then sat in my office and told me how much debt they were in. And I said, well, why don't you sell that car? Oh, no, that's a, that's a business expense. Have you ever wondered why it is that what a celebrity does makes the news? I don't really care what they do in their free time. But our culture cares because we live in a culture that seems at times addicted to luxury and comfort. Think about this. I read this article. It was, it's actually now four years old. It was from Insider.com, and they were actually interviewing a Starbucks spokesperson. And they asked them, how many combinations of beverages? And the person said, if you take all of our core beverages and you multiply them by the modifiers and the customization options, you get more than... 87,000 combinations. 87,000 combinations. I only know hazelnut grande, hazelnut latte, and I can't even get it anymore because they're still out of hazelnut syrup. I I still have 86,000 combinations to figure out. Many years ago, there was a book entitled Progress, paradox written by a man by the name of Greg Easterbrook. And some of the things he revealed in that book were things that probably all of us know, but he came to some interesting conclusions. He made the statement that 99.4% of us have a higher standard of living 
and that's of us in the U.S. of A., have a higher standard of living than 80 billion human beings that ever lived before us. And he went on to say, our lives are characterized by too much of a good thing. There's excess at every turn. We're surrounded by so much food that obesity continues to be a national crisis. We have so much entertainment information available to us, and yet we want more, and quite frankly, we get bored with all the entertainment we have. And we seem to have this mentality as a society that, been there, done that, you know, bought the t-shirt. I had a student once who wrote a paper, and she talked about wanderlust. Wanderlust is that drive to go somewhere else. I love to travel. We just got back from a trip. I, I do enjoy traveling, but person that has wanderlust, they no sooner touch down at O'Hare than they're planning the next trip. What all this excess does, be it goods, experiences, food, possessions, it takes our focus and turns it inward. Difficulties, struggles, even grave loss can be dealt with if somehow I can increase my comfort level. I've already mentioned the book of Amos was written some 2,800 years ago. Uh, Amos was speaking to people living 2,800 years ago who did not have our technology, did not have our conveniences, and, and yet the people to whom he is writing, especially in chapter 4, were people that were living a self-indulgent lifestyle. They were living in luxury. By the way, the word luxury comes from the Latin. It means excess. That's the that's the, like the second word I know from two years of Latin in high school. It sounds simplistic for us as we look at these people living in luxury and turning their luxuries into necessities, and we've all done that. Don't think you haven't turned a luxury into a necessity. This is a necessity. It started out as a luxury. It sounds simplistic when I say this, but I think the message of this chapter, and in fact the message of this book, and I would go so far if I could boil down the message of the Bible, it's simply this. The most important part of all of our lives is our relationship with God. <laughs> My five-year, soon-to-be six-year-old granddaughter, just yesterday, was lecturing her 12-year-old brother and telling him, God is first. God is most important. You have to put God first. And I was just smiling at a six-year-old lecturing a 12-year-old. She was right. Don't know how well it was received, but she was right. But, because there's really absolutely nothing we can put ahead of the fact that God and our relationship with him is the most important aspect of our lives. Today, I want you to see in Amos chapter 4 how luxury, hypocrisy, and stubbornness get in the way of real relationship with God. And yet in the midst of that, God is constantly calling us to himself, calling his people to himself, giving us all the opportunity we need to open our lives so that 
he can change us. And the key there is you have to want to change. Amos chapter 4. Let me read the first three verses, then we'll talk about them because we have to. It's very important that we do. Amos says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Luxury can get in the way of knowing God. Now we have to remember a couple things. Amos was a farmer, he was a shepherd. To our knowledge, he did not have the refinement of the upper crust. He listens to God, he observes life, and he tells it like it is. And we read the first verse in here and we go, how could he say that? That is so offensive. And it is offensive, but it was attention-getting. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, I grew up in Kansas. I, I grew up around farms. Ever thought about what cows do all day? They walk around in fields. They eat grass. They drink water. They more or less lay around. If they're a dairy cow, they get brought in to be milked twice a day. If they're a beef cow, they don't even get milked twice a day. And the reason Amos uses this term is to say, you're kind of all about yourselves, living a life of luxury, doing virtually nothing, being about yourselves. And he says, look at your actions. And they are representative of others. They first oppress the poor. In other words, these people who are living in luxury, and Bashan would be, if you would look on a map today in the, in the Near East and you would look at an area that's called the Golan Heights, that would be where Bashan is, according to archaeologists and scholars. It was a, a lush area at the time, a place where they could uh, have just wonderful uh, pastures and all. Uh, these, these would be the Wagyu beef of the time, you know. They were the, the primo. And he's saying, here's how you get to this point where you are living in luxury. You're oppressing the poor. The, the word the oppress literally means to extort. It means to abuse power. So they're extorting from the poor. The poor don't have much left to be extorted from, but whatever they have, they get it off of them. They oppress the poor. They crush the needy. Literally, they harass the needy. They were living a luxurious lifestyle of excess, but they were using the poor and the needy to advance their wealth, to advance themselves. And in fact, the way Amos describes these individuals here is they're so lazy, they order their husbands around to meet their whims. Doing whatever it takes to support an excessive, luxurious lifestyle. And Amos says, you need to hear the word of the Lord because what you're doing is against what God wants. Now, hear this very carefully. God is not against wealth. 
But God does take issue with how wealth is accumulated. God takes issue with how wealth is used. And when wealth is accumulated on the backs of the less fortunate, God stands against that. And when wealth becomes the focal point of one's life, instead of relationship with God or using one's wealth to assist others, God takes issue with that. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to write it down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy, Command those who are rich to not put their hope in money, which is, I'm paraphrasing, here today and gone tomorrow, but to put their hope in God, who gives us all things for our enjoyment. God wants us to enjoy this wonderful world that he's created. God wants us to enjoy amazing food that we can cook or that we can get at a restaurant. He wants us to enjoy that. When we, when we have experiences, you know, I was talking to my daughter the other day about being years ago at the Grand Canyon. You know, God wants us to enjoy that. We have videos of our, a couple of our grandkids on the beach this last week enjoying the waves. We enjoy that, enjoy creation. God gives us all things for our enjoyment. But he says, those of us who have more should be rich in generosity. You know, when God gives us more than we need, we ought to look around and say, how do I share with others? How do I help others? Because God's not against wealth. He's against hoarding wealth for my own luxury. When luxury becomes the driving force in your life or mine, then we lose focus on what's really important and we drift from true relationship with God. And by the way, you don't have to live in the biggest house in town and drive the best cars in town to still be addicted to luxury. Luxury is, is whatever you think you need for comfort, and if you're depending on that, then God says, no, you need to take a step back. Now, what, what Amos does is he then says, here's what's going to happen. And, and he starts that by saying that the sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The holy God is going to deal severely with those who use their position, their power, their wealth, their privilege to take advantage of or even worse, abuse others, especially those who are already poor. He has spoken by his holiness. He's sworn by his holiness. What's going to happen? The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. He describes this awful event. That's coming. And it happened. It happened in about 732 BCE. It happened. Instead of manipulating and controlling and managing their world, they would end up being controlled. One of the ways that the Assyrian army treated their enemies was to either put a ring in their nose and then attach a chain to it, or sometimes even put a fish hook in them and they would line them up and pull them out, make them walk out, not through the city gate, because the city gate was where you went in and out to show pomp and circumstance and to let everybody know who you were. No, through a breach in the wall, just a hole built in the destroyed wall, and he would, they would lead them out. 
He says here, verse 3, you'll go straight out through the breaches in the wall and you'll be cast out toward Harman. We don't know exactly where that place is. It means fortress. In some texts, it's it's used to refer to a, a place of oppression. And the bottom line is you're going to be taken to where you cannot make the demands that you have made because you have no more control. God does not look kindly on our excesses especially when they're carried out at the expense of the less fortunate. Now, what was happening in Israel, in the northern kingdom, in the capital of Samaria, was they were taking those excesses, that luxury that they were demanding for themselves, and it was affecting another area of life. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. And you realize there's sarcasm here. There's, yes, there's sarcasm in the Bible. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. For this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord hypocrisy gets in the way of knowing the Lord. Now, I, I get it. People say to me all the time, or have said to me at different times, I, I, I'm not going to church. I don't go to church. Too many hypocrites there. To which my typical response is, I know, there's room for me there. <laughs> We're all hypocrites at some way, shape. We all are hypocrite, hypocritical at different times. And we have to realize that hypocrisy gets in the way of knowing God. The, the, the prophet is so sarcastic. Go to Bethel, sin. Go to Gilgal, sin again. Why would he say that? What is God trying to convey through the prophet in this sarcasm? What does it have to do with you and me? God is calling attention to worship practices and rituals that have no meaning anymore. And that flows right out of the excessive lifestyle. You see, if I believe that because I am wealthy, I now can control my world and control other people and manipulate them to do what I want, then it stands to reason that I would just flow into the natural conclusion that God exists for me to manage him as well. God exists for me to manipulate him as well. In other words, I become my own God. Now, these two places he mentions, Bethel, is, is the place where Abraham first met God. Bethel is the place where Jacob had a dream and met God. And, and so it became a, a sacred place. Gilgal was down by the Jordan River, and when Joshua came and they marched across the Jordan, it was at Gilgal that they set up these stones of remembrance, and they were put there to remind the people of what God had done. And what had happened over the years is that had kind of become a bit of idolatry. And so by the time we get to Amos, Bethel and Gilgal are sort of religious tourist attractions. They had become places of combined worship of Yahweh and other gods. If Yahweh's good, let's, let's throw a few more into the mix. People would go there and they would go there to show how wealthy they were. And in that wealth, they would offer sacrifices. But those sacrifices were more of a, no, not, more, not a, oh, God, I'm so repentant. I'm so sorry. I've sinned. It was more like, look at me. 
Look at, how, look at how big of a sacrifice I can bring. Look at how much I can bring. Look at how much I can give. It kind of reminds me of a story in the New Testament during the last week of Jesus' life. And he and the disciples are there in the temple area, in the courtyard, and people are bringing their money in their big bags and they're dumping it into the trumpet, which was a brass thing that they dumped it in. It made a lot of noise. And finally... That widow comes, and she had, we'll put it in our terms, two pennies. And she dropped them in, and Jesus said she gave more than everybody else. Because they gave out of their excess. She gave out of her poverty. She gave all she had. And what you see all the way back in Amos, 2,800 years ago, people were displaying their wealth, their sacrifices, parading their generosity, parading their offerings, bringing them in every three years, bragging about their ability to give. God does not see this as worship, but as sin. It is actually the sin of disobedience because they're not following God's law in all of life. It's the sin of arrogance. It's the sin of pride. And remember this. The way they obtained the money that they now bring as an offering to God was through oppression and harassment of the needy. If, if, if I extort $1,000 from you and then I come to church and I give you, I give God 100 bucks, and maybe I do like I did when I was a kid once when my dad was given a bunch of money to put in the offering and he gave us kids some and I had my old buddies there. I was probably 12 or 13 and I reached in my pocket. I pulled out a couple of 20s like, you know, the, the, like it was a big deal and I you know, snapped him a couple times and laid him in the offering plate. I was just, that was, the, God took the money, but he, that, I, didn't, I didn't earn any brownie points in heaven for that, so to speak. You know, if I take that, that's, God's not pleased with that. God's not pleased with extorting money and then bringing him the tithe. Religious acts are not the true heart of worship. The heart of worship is obedience to God. See, God could care less how many times these people came or the amounts they gave because there was no sincerity. It was the worship coming out of a heart of hypocrisy. They were just going through the motions. It was not about expressing themselves to God. It was about getting other people to notice how good they were. It was not about growing their relationship with God. It was about feeling good about themselves. And, you know, they already had, they already had the words of God to King Saul from 1 Samuel 15, 22, where he said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. What about you and me? Why are you here today? Why am I here today? You can say, well, you get paid to be here. That's true. And if that's the only reason I'm here, then again, it's hypocrisy. If you walk out of the service today and you say, well, I got nothing out of that, then maybe you weren't here for the right reason. You see, the bigger question is, what did God get from me today? What did I give to him? Did I give him my attention 
Did I look at his word and say, God, speak to me? We're going to sing in a few minutes. Did I sing from my heart to say, God, this is my, my praise song to you? Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson once wrote, some people go to church with the same attitude which, which, with which they go to the ice cream store. Now, I love my ice cream. There's a little ice cream store in Wheaton that we're there. Well, if I had my choice, it would be every week. Their Jamocha ice cream is the best. But he said, you know, we go to the ice cream store, we go in, we get served, we feel good for a few minutes, and then we leave. And there's no change, there's no impact, makes no difference in my life. I just enjoy the ice cream, and then I leave. And sometimes, he said, be careful that we don't treat church like the ice cream parlor. That was what was happening to Israel in Israel 2,800 years ago. See, worship is not about you. Worship is not about me. Worship is not about the music. It's not about the style of the music. Praise God, worship is not just about the preaching. Worship is not about, oh, the cool people we get to hang out with. All of that's wonderful. All of that's important. But worship is about God, and God is more concerned that you and I grow in our walk with him than he is that we ever sing another hymn or another chorus. God is, wants us to know that we come together and we tell God in a variety of ways what he means to us. And as a result of us that doing that, we hear from him. We learn from him. We're to live out our lives so others can see that we have a relationship with him. And, and in so doing, we encourage one another. The book of Hebrews says, don't give up assembling yourselves together, but come together so that you can encourage one another. See, my hope and my prayer every week is that whoever is in the sound of my voice, be it those of us, those aren't joining us on the live stream, those of you that are here, that you walk out of here and you feel encouraged, that you feel like, I can make it another week. I can get through the next week because I know there are people back there at Pleasant Hill Community Church that love me, that accept me for who I am, that would listen to me if I have a need, that would be there if I had a need. And that's part of worship. As we sing and pray and connect with one another, we reflect our God, and we point one another to him. You see, it's not a matter of who sees you here today. It's a matter of who sees God in you because you were here today. When you make your relationship with God through Jesus Christ the most important aspect of your daily life, you will want to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as Paul says. You'll, you won't be able to help it. Even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, it'll swell up within you. When you make your relationship with God through Jesus Christ the most important aspect of your daily life, you'll want to be generous with what God has given you. You won't be able to help it. 
Israel was going through the motions. They were doing the right things, saying the right words, looking the part, and it turned God's stomach. Excessive leading, living leads to shallow worship, which leads to a stubborn response to God. And stubborn pride gets in the way of knowing God. Look at verses 6 through 11. And note the repeated phrase here. It's very important. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, but another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with their captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet... You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Israel had been told repeatedly throughout their history that there are blessings for following God's law and there are curses or punishments for not following God's law, and if you looked at Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29 and laid it against this passage here, Amos 4, 6-11, you would see time and again Amos is referring to God's promises of punishment for not following his law. But did you notice that? Every time God brought a hardship, every time he brought a struggle, every time he brought something to them that should have wakened them up and said, wait a minute, he says, you didn't return to me. You had empty stomachs. Literally, that word means clean teeth. You had no food, so your teeth weren't dirty. You had clean teeth. God said, I allowed drought to come. There were plagues, there were there were." All kinds of things, military defeat, destruction inflicted in your cities. Nothing God did brought about the change and repentance that should have restored relationship to him. As a pastor, one of the very painful parts of ministry has been able to has been to have the experience of sitting with Parents whose children have not only walked away from God, but have walked away from their parents as well. None of us who are parents are perfect. We all make mistakes. We all fail. But we all long to see our relationship with our children grow. And when our sacrifices and provision over the years get spurned, it is painful. And I think that's God's heart here. That's God's heart to say, I I tried everything. I tried tough love, and you didn't come back to me. From another point of view, sometimes you and I think that bad things happen because God's just punishing us. But sometimes God allows hardship in our lives to get our attention, to, to wake us up a little bit. 
to get back on course to knowing him a little bit better. Maybe you're going through something right now that you don't fully understand. I want to urge you to kind of change the prayer that you may be praying. Sometimes we pray for God just to bring relief. Go, God, just make it go away. Sometimes we pray that God will show us where we've sinned so we can change. And and none of those are bad prayers. But maybe, maybe we ought to ask God, in this moment of struggle, would you draw me closer to you? Draw me closer to you in this moment of struggle. I want to have a deeper relationship with you in the middle of my struggle. I want to grow in intimacy with you in the middle of my struggle. You know, you look back over the friendships that you have that have endured. Look back over, maybe some of us can look back over our married lives and we've been through some stuff. We've endured. We've endured and it was in the struggle in the endurance that we grew together, that we cemented that relationship. God says, maybe it's in the struggle that I want you just to cling to me and endure and know that I'm here and grow with me. I'm more convinced that God wants you to grow in relationship with him than anything else. That's what he wanted for the people in Israel. And he said, I did everything I could. I did all the tough love I had, and you still didn't return to me. Israel failed to, re- to learn that lesson. So God gives a final warning here in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He never tells them what he's going to do. We don't know exactly. This is what I'm going to do to you. What are you going to do? You just better get ready to meet God. Yeah, but what are you going to do so I can prepare? I can, I can, I can recalculate my investments. I, I can diversify my portfolio. I, 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 I can maybe change to the way I've treated the... the so I, no, you, I'm not telling you what I'm going to do. Because if I told you what I was going to do, you would try to figure out a way to manipulate it. I'm not going to let you do that. You just do one thing. You better prepare to meet God. And this isn't one of those, ooh... You know, kind of the, what's the song, if I could only imagine, am I going to dance, I'm going to kneel? No, you're going to prepare to meet God, and when you meet God, you will be flat on your face in abject fear. Prepare to meet your God is not a, a nice invitation, it's get ready to answer for your sin. God is not impressed by our attempts to control life. He says this, he who forms the mountain, who creates the wind, who reveals his thought to mankind, who turns the dawn to darkness, treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord Almighty is his name. He is saying, I am God, I am God Almighty, I am the one who's in complete control. I am not impressed with your attempts to figure out how to do religion. I want you to know me. I'm not impressed by your power displays because they are nothing. I want you to know me. There has only ever been one way to prepare to meet God. We remembered it this morning at the very beginning. It is to humble my heart, to acknowledge my sin, to come to God on his terms, and to remember God will not be cajoled 
or manipulated or impressed or intimidated or managed. Prepare to meet God. The Lord Almighty is his name. You see, God has given you all that you have. He's given me all that I have. God has given his very life through, or gave his son for us. Jesus gave his very life for us. And he wants a relationship with us. Just as he longed for a relationship with people who were named after his chosen one, Jacob, renamed Israel. We are consumerists. We all are. We, we do like our stuff. We take care of it. It's okay to do that. But one day, all our stuff isn't going to matter. One day, all our stuff is going to mean nothing. The one thing that will matter is our heart relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what God wants. And if you have that, then you are prepared to meet your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you, as I read these minor prophets, I thank you for their courage. Amos went up to Israel. wasn't even his land. He's from Judah. He spoke truth, kind of harshly, but he spoke truth courageously. Lord, may we listen to your truth today. It's not about my words. It's about what your word says to us. And Lord, I pray that each one of us here would be prepared to meet our God whenever that time comes, but, but be aware of the fact that you are with us now and we meet you now. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.